Well, good morning. morning. Solomon once said that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, I grew up in a family, or I was born in a family of uh, five children, and out of those five, four were girls. So if you do the complicated math, that means I was the only boy. Um, And growing up, you can imagine a common question I got, and even still today get, is, do you ever wish you had brothers? And I remember growing up, I uh, would always answer very quickly, yes. Uh, Absolutely, I wish I had a lot of brothers, or even just one. Just one would be phenomenal. Um, But in the past 10 years, I've come to notice that in every phase of life, the Lord gave me a friend that fits that description, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Uh, Even still today, I have a a good group of them back home, and all of these guys, uh, they're they're older than me, they're they're, they're, they're elders, they're husbands, they're fathers, they have a lot of responsibilities in life, but for some reason, uh, they care for me in... um, real special ways. And I I know even when Maggie and I go home to California, they'll text me weeks in advance and they'll say, Nick, we know your family's missed you. We know they have a lot planned, but you better save time for us. It's really a threat more than anything. (laughs) Um, But a lot of times I'll get there, I'll give them a time that uh, my mom maybe hasn't planned anything and, and, and we'll finally arrive, we'll be hanging out and I'll find out that these guys moved their work schedules around or they put their lives on hold in some ways just so that they could spend time with me. They're just really great guys. Um, and throughout the years, we've been able to uh, go through a lot together. Uh, we've been in the Word of God together. We've spent a lot of time uh, serving the Lord together in the assemblies, at camps, and various other things. And uh, these guys are all doing really well. Uh, they're real special to me. But there was one that isn't doing well today. And um, this friend... I, I may not have known him for as long as I've known the others, but uh, for probably 10 years now, he, uh, 10 years ago, he entered into our lives, and he was just a, a great brother, really great brother. He um, really genuinely loved the Lord. He loved his word. I mean, he, he was just such an encouraging guy to be around. He pointed me to the Lord in so many ways, um, and he had served in the military. Uh, he was in the Army for years, um, had served in Iraq and Afghanistan, had seen a lot of things, been through a lot, but when he entered into our life, it was just after all of that, and you could tell that the Lord really just had a hold of his life, and he was just such an encouraging guy. Uh, I really love him even still to this day, Uh, but as time went on, just as quickly as life brought him into our lives, um, we all know that it can just as quickly take someone out of your life, and uh, him and his wife were kind of having difficulties financially. Uh, He was trying to find work. Um, in California, obviously, it's very expensive to live there. And he had a job, but it just wasn't enough to uh, take care of his wife and his family. So we started looking for other jobs, and he found one in Texas. And, and we were really worried about him because we could see that in his heart, he was really struggling, starting to struggle with a lot of things. Uh, I won't go into detail, but he was struggling with a lot of things. And uh, he came to this point where he felt like, he should go to Texas to take this job. And and the reason why we were so concerned was there was really no chapel or church that he planned on being a part of or could have been a part of that could have encouraged him. Uh, But he felt that's what he needed to do to take care of his family. And so they went to Texas. And I really don't know this series or the, the details and how everything fell, but I do know that his wife 
who is very close with all of us, uh, reached out to some of the guys. And she just said, you know, my husband's not doing well. Uh, we're not doing well. Their, their marriage was struggling. And so two of my friends um, took a week off of work, flew to Texas to try and encourage him. And he was really struggling. And their marriage was struggling. And I remember they got back, and I couldn't wait to hear how it went. I was praying for them the whole time. And I said, I said to my brother, Justin, I said, Justin, how did it go? And he looked at me. He was so disappointed. And um, he said he had this conversation with this brother, and he just said, what's going on? Like, we know this isn't you. Um, he was struggling with a, a lot of worldliness and selfishness within himself. His marriage was suffering as a cause of it. And they said, so what's going on? And Justin told me that he looked him in the eyes and he said, I'm just not happy. I'm just not happy. We continued to pray for him, but a couple months later we found that um, he ended up having an affair. And um, months later, his marriage ends in divorce. He had two beautiful children under the age of five years old, and he left them. All because he wasn't happy. Heartbreaking. It really is heartbreaking. I remember um, after we had all heard about that, we were all, me and my friends were all gathered together and we were talking about it. And, and you would think that as we were talking about what happened to our dear friend, our hearts would just be filled with frustration and anger and just, you would just think those were the emotions in our heart. But, but you know what emotion was the greatest in our heart at that moment? It was one of those moments, I don't know if you've ever been in a group of people where everyone's thinking the exact same thing, but one person happens to say it out loud. All of us were experiencing fear. Fear. And I remember my brother Justin said, that could be any one of us tomorrow. It could be any one of us tomorrow. I really didn't want to use um, my dear friend uh, as an example of this. But you know what? There, there are probably three or four other marriages I could have told a story about. Had different start, different beginnings, but the same ending. I'm just not happy. And what does it lead one to do to go down this whole, this, this terrible path of thinking about nothing but ourselves and, in, and its end is just destruction? I know that as I tell you this story, I'm sure each and every one of us could have countless marriages that just came into our mind. We could all tell stories just like this. It's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking, but one thing it isn't today is it's not surprising because we all see it. Some of us maybe have even seen it in our own families, in our own closest friends. But I want to ask, since this has become such a common issue in our society, is it possible that maybe, just maybe, it has become so common that maybe it's blinded us to our own unfaithfulness to God? to our own unfaithfulness to God. Are we much better than my friend? Uh, that's the question we're going to ask ourselves today as we look at the book of James, uh, James chapter 4. Uh, James chapter 4.
James chapter 4 and verse 1. I will be uh, reading to you from the New American Standard Bible this morning. Uh, But James chapter 4 verse 1 reads, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, um, perhaps it is possible for me to um, deceive everyone in this room. But Father, as, as we come into your presence this morning, I know that I'm not capable of deceiving you or fooling you. Father, I, I don't, really don't know how to speak on this passage without sounding like a hypocrite. And so, Lord, we just cry out to you at this time, and we just ask that of whatever it is that you have for us this morning, Father, that you would be the one to speak to our hearts. Father, I fear that each and every one of us reads this passage, and maybe we can see too much of ourselves in it. Father, we we know that this hurts our heart, but it hurts no heart more than it hurts yours. And so, Father, we just ask that you would speak to us in this time. Father, convict us in the areas we need to be convicted Encourage us in the ways in which we need to be encouraged. But, Father, we pray that whatever is spoken, that only you would receive the glory and that our lives would be changed as a result of it. We ask this in the name of you, the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. I um, was contemplating whether or not to mention this to you because I doubt many of you will remember. But um, the very first message I gave on James, I uh, misspoke on a little detail, and I wanted to just bring it to your attention. Um, James is writing this letter, and there's been some debate as to uh, which James wrote this letter. There are four James mentioned in the New Testament, uh, two of which are pretty much taken out of the running altogether because, uh, for example, they're only mentioned once. So, for example, uh, Judas Iscariot, when he's introduced in the Gospels, it says Judas Iscariot, the son of James. But that James is never mentioned again, at least that we know. So you wouldn't assume that Judas Iscariot's father wrote this letter, okay? That leaves us with two James. Now, I had originally said that it is between James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, and James the Just. Now, if you know your church history, that would be a very confusing statement because James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, was nicknamed James the Just. So there's a typo in my notes. Um... What I really meant to say was it's either between James, the just, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, 
and James, the brother of John that we see mentioned in Acts. Now, the reason why we hold the position or most people hold the position that it was uh, James, the half-brother of the Lord, is because James, the brother of John, is martyred very early on. In fact, he's the second martyr that is mentioned in the book of Acts. So I wanted to clarify just for my own conscience sake, and I wanted to use this as an opportunity to ask you all for a favor, okay? I know I'm not the only one to study these things, so if I ever say anything that's inaccurate, whether I misquote a verse, give a wrong reference, or maybe in this case I just misspeak a little bit, I want to ask you, love me enough to tell me, okay? I promise you I won't cry until I get home, okay? So you won't won't see it, Um, but um, it is a, a very... Uh, serious thing to be up here, and I, it might not seem that way, but I try and take it as seriously as possible. Um, so love me enough to tell me, okay? And I'm sure all the brothers that are also involved in speaking would say the same. But James, the half-brother of the Lord, is writing this letter, and I've said it before, that he's writing to a, a group of Jewish believers. Um, these are uh, people who have um, come to place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, but what is special about this group is that this is the very first generation of Christians that James is writing to. Uh, James was perhaps the earliest book that we have uh, recorded in the New Testament. And so James is writing this very practical letter to these Jewish believers. And um, I've mentioned that he's writing this letter with the intention of telling them how a Christian is to live, because I've mentioned how this group of believers is at a severe disadvantage in the sense that They had come to know the Old Testament and its ways and its covenant that they had made with God. But now they have been pulled out of that almost entirely because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have this very first generation of believers who are all of a sudden living in a new dispensation under grace. And they have no generation to look back on as to how they are expected to live. So James is uh, moved by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to them, a very practical letter expressing how a child of God should conduct themselves. But I want to suggest to you, whenever you, you read a, an epistle in the New Testament, it's very important to ask the question, why is the author writing this? And I've already mentioned why perhaps James is writing this letter. But the reason why that's important to ask with every letter is because if you can find the answer to that question, you can interpret the letter the way the author intended it to be interpreted. So we have a problem today. A lot of people will take verses out of context. They'll apply it to situations that the author really wasn't even addressing. But if we can find the answer to why the authors are writing these letters, you can interpret it correctly. There are some letters that um, the authors make it very easy. For example, 1 John, he says, These things I write to you so that you might know that you're a child of God. So you see right off the bat, John is burdened by God to write this letter to say, I want you to know that you're a child of God. If you're a child of God, your life looks like this. And so that's how you read through the first book, the first epistle of John, and you interpret it with that, I guess, view in mind, okay? Unfortunately, you come to a book like James, and James really kind of leaves it up to you to try and figure out. Uh, There's no, you know, I write these things because of this, or whatever the case is. So you have to read through and see if there are any indications or clues that would help you see uh, why James is writing this letter. Um, I want to suggest to you that not only is he burdened to tell them how a child of God is to live, but we've come to the passage that I think is the 
strongest suggestion that we have in this letter as to another possibility why he's writing this letter. I really think that as James is writing this, and I've thought about this for the past couple of months, as James is writing this letter, I really think he is concerned that some of Israel's old way of living is going to come into their now relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I think there are a lot of things that um, you can use as a proof for that. One of the most common ones is in James 1. We know the famous verse where he says, uh, be, be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? Well, if you think about that from the Jewish perspective, what was something that they were supposed to do every seven years? Well, they were supposed to have the law of God read aloud to the whole, to the whole congregation of believers or to the whole congregation of Jews. Well, the problem was the Jews, they would perhaps have this practice, but they wouldn't allow the word of God to impact their life. They would have it read aloud, but they would never obey it. And so James is calling them, as we see in chapter 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Deceiving yourself and thinking that it's enough to show up and hear the word of God. James is saying, no, you have to allow it to impact the way in which you live your life. So that's an example. Uh, the, the, the other strong suggestion that we have of that, I think, is in chapter 4, which we'll see um, in a lot of the language he uses, that James is concerned with the way in which the Israelites lived in their relationship with God and how that would impact them in, this, in their walk with the Lord Jesus today. Um, so there are three things I want you to see that we're going to point out in this uh, time that we have together. Uh, the first is the cause. I tried to keep my outline very simple. The cause, the second being the condition, and the third being the cure. The cause, condition, and cure. So, the cause. James starts by asking a question, and it's a good question. It's a question that I think people ask today. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Some translations would perhaps better read, what is the source of battles and wars among you? We could ask that same question today. I mean, you look at the world, why is it that Russia is in Ukraine and and hundreds and thousands of innocent people are dying daily? Why is it that if you look at the church of God, there are constant divisions, strife, and envy amongst even God's children? Why is it that we look at our own families and maybe our own marriages? Why is it that even in our close quarters, there's nothing but contention and battles and and strife amongst us? It's a good question, a question that I think we could ask today. Um, But James starts this passage by asking this serious question, but then he asks a series of questions throughout this passage, and every other time he asks a question, the answer is implied. In other words, he says, is it not, or do you not know? The answer is implied. Notice the next question he asks, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He asks this this great question, what is the source, what is the cause of all of these issues that are around us? And he says, is not the cause your own pleasure? You look at your own marriage, you look at your own family today, and you see nothing but strife and fighting and bickering or whatever the case is. And James says, is not the cause your own heart? You see, what James is addressing here, he's addressing this battle that is taking place inside each and every one of us. And the battle that is taking place centers around one simple question, and that question is this. Who will rule your life? 
Who will rule your life? Notice in these first three verses, I want you to see, in the first three verses alone, James uses the pronoun you and your 13 times. In three verses alone, he says you 13 times. You want this, but you don't have it, so it leads you to do this. You, you, You see your brother having this, and you want it, so it leads you to doing this. You, 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 you. You see, the problem is, James is saying, what's the, what's the source of all of these issues around us? It's your own heart and it's your own failure in, in, in really choosing to only seek to please yourself. And James, in this passage, in these first three verses, James points out that when we, des- when we seek to live a life pleasing only ourself, it affects us in two ways, socially and spiritually. Okay, so we're going to see that. But I want you to, we need to ask the question, are all of our pleasures sinful? I think that's a good question. And I don't think that's what James is saying. Because each and every one of us can have pleasures or we can find pleasure and delight in something that is completely holy or in the eyes of God, not sinful at all. But any pleasure can become sinful. And so the question is, well, well, at what point does my pleasure cross the threshold of being pure in the eyes of God to now being sinful? And I want to suggest to you that what James is saying here is the moment in which that pleasure becomes a ruling desire in your life, that's when it becomes sinful. In other words, when you have such delight in something that you want it regardless of what it's going to cost you regardless of what it's going to cost you. Like my friend, I hate to use him as an example, I'm just not happy. Well, maybe if I'm with this other woman, it'll make me happy. Maybe if I leave my responsibilities of being a husband to my wife and a father to my children, maybe then I'll be happier. You see, what was the problem? Who is ruling his life? His own pleasures, okay? So at any point, our pleasures can become sinful if we allow them to rule our lives if we allow them to rule our lives. Um, so the first thing we see in this, in this uh, verse here, in verse 2, is that our ruling desires affect us socially. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. When, when we use the word lust in our society, a lot of times it carries... Um, this idea of sexual impurity. And what I mean by that, you remember the Lord Jesus says, if you look at a woman and lust for her in your heart, you've committed adultery with her in your heart, right? That's usually how we use this word lust, lustfulness. When you hear someone say, I struggled with lustfulness, you, well, you, you can fill in the blank and, and really assume, well, he struggled with, with a lot of sexual impurities or whatever the case is in his life. But when you see this word used in the New Testament, it, unless it is used in the context of sexual immorality, it's actually used in a much broader sense. The idea is I see something that someone else has and I want it for myself. That's the idea. Okay, so it's really the whole idea of covetousness. It's I see this brother, he has this possession, and I want it. But it's not just that I want it. I wish that he didn't have it and I wish God gave it to me instead. That's the whole idea of this, 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 this lustfulness that he's talking about. And notice what he says. You lust and do not have... So you commit murder. 
you say, well, what in the world? James, I mean, that's kind of crazy. I mean, I, I don't think, uh, I think if, if there were actual literal, you know, murderers in the congregation, maybe he would respond a lot more strongly. So what is he saying? Is he saying that they li- it literally leads them to murder one another? I, I could be. I really don't think that's the case. I, I would encourage you to read through the Sermon on the Mount and read through the book of James. And you are going to see that almost everything James says was impacted by the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, and, and you can even just Google it. It's not an uncommon thing. You're going to see tons of charts, and John MacArthur has a great one that you can look up. But I want to suggest to you that what, jo- what James has in mind is actually connected to the um, Sermon on the Mount. Remember in uh, Matthew 5, 21, don't need to turn there. The Lord Jesus says, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. In other words, he says, you've heard it say that if someone is a murderer, he's going to be guilty before this court. But in the, it's interesting that in this sermon, the Lord takes being angry with your brother and he puts it on the same scale as murdering someone. First um, John 3.15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And so I really think that's what James is saying here. He's saying you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. Maybe you don't do it literally, but you might do it figuratively in your heart. I mean, crazy. Me simply seeing someone else, in, maybe they have something, whether it's a lifestyle, maybe they have a better paying job, a bigger house, maybe they're treated differently by society. I really have no idea. You can fill in the blank. But if I see someone who has anything like that that I want, and it causes me to just be so angry with that person. In the eyes of God, you're no better than a murderer. Crazy. It affects us in this way socially. Why? Because all I'm focused on is myself. Oh, man, that's a nice car. That would make me happy if God gave it to me. I wish God gave it to me and not that brother or that sister or whatever the case is. Now, all of a sudden, I'm so focused on what I don't have, and I have turned my back on all that the Lord has already blessed me with, and I'm not content or satisfied with what he's given me. You know, I said it in the last message because there's a lot of correlation between um, the wisdom from above in this passage, Um, but when someone does well in our midst, it should really move our hearts to rejoice with them. But unfortunately, a lot of times it has the opposite effect. This person gets a promotion. This person gets a new house, or, or, or maybe they have a, another uh, baby girl, and we wanted a girl, but, but, our couple, but the Lord didn't give us a, a girl. Or in, in my case, you know, the, the Lord gave my parents four girls and one only begotten son. I don't know, okay? But we can fill in the blank, and, and, and if it, we should really be moved to rejoice with one another when someone does well. But we need to search our hearts. Is there any cause for for envy in our hearts. I mean, just really think about how you would think about everyone in this room. Is there anyone in this room that really, or in your life, in your family, we can spread the net out even wider. Is there anyone that you have been moved to really just be jealous over when really you should be rejoicing with them? And James is saying, listen, you lust and do not have, so you murder. In the eyes of God, 
you're just as guilty as a murderer. Very, very serious language that he uses, but he takes it a step further. He says, you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, maybe you're not moved to kill this person in your mind, but you're envious in your heart, and and no matter how hard you try, you can't get it. Imagine you work in the same place as this individual, and you're working so hard, and, and, and maybe in your opinion, you're working even harder than the other, but the other person gets a promotion, and you don't, and all of a sudden, you're just moved to envy. I used the example before. Maybe, maybe you look at someone who has a, a, a certain position or job, and you see that in your eyes, you are working so much harder than them, and yet they're making more. And here I am just barely scraping by. I'm putting in more hours, more effort. My life is miserable because of it. And that's what James is saying. He's like, you, 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 you envy and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The idea of envy, as we saw in the last, last month, is the idea of a resentful jealousy. Not only do you covet what that person has, but you're jealous because God has given it to them and not you. And that leads you to fight and quarrel. Wars and battles amongst us, it's all, it's all a result of your own selfishness. You can't see past your selfishness. You can't rejoice with a brother or sister who's doing well. All you see is the things in your life that you're lacking. And James says, this is what leads you to fight and quarrel. It affects you socially. But I want you to see, notice, very, very, very important for us to see, it affects us spiritually. It affects us spiritually. And what James does is he presents two cases before us of how this might affect us spiritually in our walk with the Lord. The first thing he mentions is it might show itself in prayerlessness, a life of prayerlessness. Notice what he says at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Someone once told me, if you want to humble any Christian, regardless of how mature or spiritual they might be, just ask them how their prayer life is. Just really look at our life. How is our prayer life doing? How's it going? Do we really seek to just come into the Lord's presence and and to fall at his feet, to worship and adore him, to lay our requests down at his feet? Or is it something that really just loses priority in our life? And James is saying, when you're so focused on yourself and your own pleasures, it can manifest itself in a life of prayerlessness. You have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. Notice it not only does it manifest itself in a life of prayerlessness, maybe it manifests itself in a life or a prayer life of selfishness, a prayer life of selfishness. Notice what he says, and this was so uh, piercing to my heart. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you might spend it on your own pleasures. Okay, let's stop and and really think about what James is saying here. We've talked about the problem with this audience, the problem with this group of people, maybe even the problem with our own lives today, is James is saying you, you have this issue with idolatry. And that idol in your life is yourself, your own pleasures, your own joy. What's going to make me happy? Now notice, if you carry that into verse 3, what are they asking for? They're saying, Lord, give me more of what is taking me away from you. And James is saying, you do not have 
You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you might spend it on your own pleasures. You don't want what I want for your life. You just want more of what your heart desires. And by the way, that is the very thing that's pulling you away from me. You know, I was thinking about this, and it was shocking to me that James here gives us a strong suggestion of maybe why God doesn't give us some of the things we ask for. And the very reason why maybe God isn't answering our prayers and giving us the things we're asking for, because quite frankly, it's not best for your relationship with the Lord. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're like Paul. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians? He had this issue, this thorn in the flesh, and he comes to the Lord three different times. He says, Lord, remove this thorn. Remove this thorn. Think about what I could do for you, Lord. If you just removed this problem in my life, I could do so much more for you. And the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. You say, Lord, was not what Paul asking for pure? I mean, he wanted you to remove this out of his life so that he could be more beneficial for your work. And yet the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Maybe, maybe the things we ask for, the Lord isn't giving us. Because quite frankly, if he were to give them to us, it would not cause us to come closer to him, but only take a step further away from him. And maybe the thing you're asking for is completely pure. Maybe you're coming to the Lord and you're saying, Lord, I would love to be married to a a godly man or woman. Lord, I would love to, to have another child or to have a child and to raise him up in the way that he should go. I would love to get that promotion at work because think about all the things I could do if I just had more money for you, Lord. And the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. The Lord says, I'm only going to give you what's good for you. I'm only going to give you the very best for you. And if the Lord says no, we have to accept that with faith, that that's the best that he has for us. Maybe you're struggling with health, and your prayer is, Lord, just take this ailment away from me. And the Lord says no. Because the Lord can teach you perhaps so much more about himself and, and his grace for you if you were to just endure this ailment that he's given you. I don't know. You fill in the blank. But James is saying maybe the very thing that we're asking for, God isn't giving us because it wouldn't help us in our relationship with him. You do not have, or you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. I wonder in our prayers, this is something I'm always convicted about, in our prayers when we come to the Lord, are they only filled with what we need? In other words, we come to the Lord. We say, say you spend, let's be generous. I hate that this is generous. Let's say you spend 30 minutes in prayer a day. In that 30 minutes, how much of that is filled with what you want and how much of that is filled with thanksgiving to what the Lord has already given you? I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't, I don't even have 30 minutes when I pray. Maybe you know I woke up late or whatever the case is and I come to the Lord and all, all that fills my, my heart and my mind are the things that I need from the Lord to get through that day. And those are the things I come to him with. But, but, but James is saying that even their own prayer life were just filled with their own selfishness. May that not be true of us today. And so what is the cause of all of these terrible things? Well, the cause is our own selfish desires. The Lord says in Matthew six twenty four, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
Now, obviously, now in that passage, the next verse, he says, you cannot serve God in mammon, or you cannot serve God in wealth. So I want to, I want to make sure you didn't pull that out of context. But I think the same can be true. You can't serve God and yourself. You can't serve God and yourself. And so our own selfishness affects us socially, but even more so spiritually. So what does that lead to? Well, it leads us to our condition. To our condition. Put on your bulletproof vest, because this is where it gets so heartbreaking for me. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Now, if you're reading from the King James or New King James Version, I think it might be a little um, misleading and confusing because it will say, you adulterers and adulteresses. Now, if you were to look at it in the original language, there's only one word there, and it's in the feminine. So it would read, you adulteresses. Now, just stop and think about this for a second. What he's talking about is what is the condition? If you are living a life just focused on pleasing yourself, what is your condition? Well, in God's eyes, it's like you're having an affair on his son, the Lord Jesus. You adulterers, or you adulteresses. I mean, just let that sink in for a second. He's talking about an affair. To be so consumed with what brings you pleasure and what might please your heart, in the eyes of God, it's like you're cheating on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I I, I really hate this illustration, but if Maggie came up to me and said, Nick, I really love you, but you know what? There's this other guy. And I love him too. So I, 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 I worked it all out. How about I give you weekends and I'll give him the rest of the week? Can we just work that out? And you say, well, my goodness, Maggie would have to be messed up. She's not. She's wonderful. But isn't that what at times we do to the Lord? We say, you know what, Lord? The week's looking kind of busy. I got a lot going on. But how about this? Saturday, if I, got, if, if I catch up on everything I need to catch up on, then it's yours Sunday. How about this? I'll give you the morning. I mean, that's how we treat the Lord. And yet James is saying, if you live a life so focused on yourself, you are cheating on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he adopts this. I really think he, he, he takes on himself um, Old Testament language. Now, one thing that's important about the book of James, James writes assuming his audience is, 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 taught in according to the Old Testament. Okay, what I mean by that, he he says things and he doesn't explain it because he assumes that the audience he's talking to already is aware of what took place in the Old Testament. Okay, so so take that in mind and uh, there's so many verses I could choose from. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. I just want you to see that perhaps verses like this are what is going through... um, the mind of James as he is writing this, as he is calling them adulterers. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20. Uh, There's so many verses I could use, but uh, 3 and verse 20, Jeremiah. Surely, as a woman treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. We could read all of Hosea. And we could see the same language that the Lord would use of the, the, the Old Testament, um, the, the uh, nation of Israel. And yet he adopts the same terminology, the same language. And he says, if you live a life for yourself, you're no better than your ancestors were. And you say, well, wait a second, James. I mean, they were worshiping other gods. They were sacrificing to, to, to these idols. How can you say me living for myself? is just as bad as them. 
What James is saying, you know, they might have been offering sacrifices to these man-made images, but you're offering sacrifices to yourself. The idol has become yourself. And so he's saying if you live your life for yourself, you are no better than an idolater serving an image. Crazy. But notice, you, you, you have to then ask the question, well, how is it that me living for myself would make me all of a sudden like a cheating wife? And he, he offers a clue. He says, do you not know? Here's another question. The answer is implied. Obviously, yes. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Well, wait a second, James. I wasn't talking about the world. You weren't talking about the world. You were talking about me living my life for myself. So how can you say that me living a life for myself automatically makes me a friend of the world? It's very interesting. If you were to look at this word friend, you desire to be a friend of the world. The whole idea of friendship is simply this, to have an affection for, to have an affection for. And James is saying, if you desire to live a life only for yourself, consumed with only your own pleasures and only that which will make you happy, it is as if you are taking your affection, the affection that should be on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are putting it on the very spirit and nature that runs this world. And yet, what is it that that the Lord says we're saved from? We're called out of this world. Out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. And yet the Lord, uh, through James, is saying, you are taking the affection that is rightfully my son's, and you are giving it. You are manifesting it in your life in the very way the world does. Your affection is for the world. Isn't, oh man, that's so convicting. Like I said, I, I talk to myself because I don't know how to say these things without sounding so hypocritical. The affection that is rightfully the Lord Jesus, we offer it to ourselves. We offer it to the very nature of this world. By living only for myself and my own pleasures is to make myself like the very thing the Lord saved me out of. Crazy. Not only do we see that our condition is as if we are in an affair, but I want you to see that it's an active affair. Notice, he says, uh, look at the end of verse 4. He says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know what James is saying there? It's a decision that you are consciously making. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The, it's, it's very interesting. If you look up this word wishes um, and you see how it was used in the uh, New Testament, um, it's not just uh, something that you desire to have, okay? Like, like I wish I had a brand new truck, for example, okay? I do. That's my, that's my sinful flesh. Big jump, okay? Um, the, the whole idea is not just that I have a desire for it, but that I actually come up with a plan to obtain it, Okay? So in this example, I want a brand new truck, and it's this much money. It's, it's way too much money because the one I want is really expensive. It's really expensive. So I need to save up this much money for um, a down payment. I need to wait till this time of the year because they have a great sale right before the, the brand new ones come. But if I wait even a little bit longer, maybe I can have one of the brand new ones coming out. I don't know. But I formed this plan so that I can obtain what I've set my heart to. That's the whole idea. James is saying... Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
It's a conscious decision that you have made. Man, what strong language. It's an active affair. Look at verse 5. This is perhaps the most difficult verse in the book of James, and I'll tell you why. James says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now, I say that this is the most difficult verse in James because upon reading it, you would think that James is here quoting an Old Testament verse. However, James isn't quoting an Old Testament verse. In fact, there's no verse in the Old Testament that even relatively would fit this description of what he says. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. There's a proverb that comes kind of close, but it's really not that close at all. And so that leads a lot of people to say, well, what in the world is James saying? If he's not quoting the Old Testament, what is he saying? And, and this verse is very difficult to translate. In fact, if you were to pick up three really great commentaries, Bill McDonald, MacArthur, you know, some other, you know, Ironside, some of these great guys, you're going to find that the, even these guys disagree on what this verse is saying because it's so difficult to translate. And I'm not going to pretend like I know the answer. I can suggest something to you. I want to suggest that James is here um, asking two questions, okay? Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? The idea is, do you think the, the, the Scripture speaks in an empty way, as if it means nothing? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. I think he's asking two questions here. And, and in that question, you could say that it's kind of summarizing ideas found in the Old Testament, that God jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But the, the, the difficulty with this, like I said, there are three, three trains of thought on what spirit the Lord is talking about. Okay, one is kind of an, an older kind of view that people had, and that is that the spirit of man constantly lusts against the spirit of God. In other words, there's always opposition. The spirit of man always lusts that which is evil, which is contrary to God, and so there's this opposition taking place within. That's one train of thought. The second thought is that the Holy Spirit within us constantly is lusting after or, or envying or is jealous over the Spirit within us. Okay, so, so now if you're a saved child of God, you have this Holy Spirit that is made to dwell inside of you, and that Spirit lusts against the Spirit of my flesh. Okay, so, the, so that's, that's a second thought. The, second th or the third thought I want to suggest to you is the more probable thought is that God is jealous over the spirit of man. And, and why would you say that? Well, because the whole idea of what James is saying is he pictures this marriage where the wife is unfaithful to the husband and the husband still loves the wife. That's the whole picture of this passage that James is speaking of. And what he is saying is, God jealously desires the spirit, the spirit of man which he has made to dwell in you. He looks at your life. He sees you living a life for yourself. And that moves God to be jealous, to long for your affection. Remember, you've taken your affection, that affection that belongs to God, and you have placed it on yourself. You've placed it on the things of this world. And God sees that, and he is so jealous for you. Because he loves you. 
I mean, there are so many illustrations that I, that I was trying to think of giving that would just help me wrap my mind around. Can you imagine looking at a, a, a hill of ants and just being jealous that those ants are, I don't know, taking pieces of your donut away? And you're just jealous over that ant because you wish it would just bring it. I mean, even then, that falls so short. And yet, that is what God is saying. He looks at how you're living your life. And he's jealous for you. He longs for your affection. He longs for your devotion. And he's jealous for you. What is James saying? It's as if James is saying that God's desire is to walk with you through life and have as close a relationship as you'll let him. But if I decide I want to walk a path that only fills my own desires and my own flesh, God can't join me on that journey. Because my way is sinful and my way is contrary to him. And yet the Lord says, Nick, I want to walk with you as long as you'll let me walk with you. I want to be so close to you and have such an intimate relationship with you, but I'll only go as far as you'll let me go. And unfortunately, in our lives, what are we doing when when we adopt this mindset of selfishness and, and idolatry in our heart? What are we doing? We're deciding to knowingly keep the Lord at arm's length away. Heartbreaking. What this must do to the heart of God. And so we see the cause of these issues around us. We see our condition. If this fits with the condition of our lives and our hearts, we're no better than a wife who is unfaithful to her husband. But notice, the Lord gives a cure. And a lot of times people get so caught up in verses 7 through 10, they forget to look at verse 6. And let me tell you, verses 7 through 10 are only possible because of verse 6. Notice he says, but uh, James says, but he gives a greater grace. He gives a greater grace, regardless of what sin is in your life, regardless of how much you've probably hurt the heart of God, the Lord has a grace restored for you in heaven that is greater than even your own sin. And he says it's yours if you would just humble yourself. If you would just humble yourself before God, he will give you that grace. You know, it's beautiful. Um, Romans, Paul's talking about our, 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 the vastness of our sin. How, how our sin is so great and so vast. He says, but where our sin abounded, the grace of God abounded much more. But he's talking about salvation. Our sin was so great before God, but God's grace was bigger. You know what James is saying? He's saying, where your sin still continually dwells greatly, guess what? God's grace is still greater. In your own salvation, in your own walk with the Lord, God's grace is greater Regardless of how much you've hurt him, I don't know why God allows his heart to go through such anguish over what a small man like me does with my life. But regardless of how much I break his heart, he has a grace that is greater reserved for me. Let's just go through these. We're we're running out of time, but verses um, 7 through 10, he says, submit, therefore, to God. Number one, submit, therefore, to God. What does it mean to submit yourself? Well, the whole idea is that you are actively subordinating yourself to someone. In other words, you are actively deciding to put yourself below someone. 
You see, this whole, the whole problem up to this point is that there's one person on the throne of my life, and that is myself, my pleasures, the things I long for. And that is what I want to bring glory to. That is what I want to satisfy. But James is saying, number one, submit to God. You need to take yourself off the throne, and you need to repent and put the Lord back on the throne of your life. That is what James is saying. Number two, this is beautiful. Resist the devil... And he will flee from you. He gives seven things that that the Christian is to do in response to our sin. Three of these things come with a promise. And this is one of them. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's guaranteed. It is promised by God that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. But the whole idea of resist, it is not to flee from. It is not to go in the opposite direction. This is actually a military term used to describe soldiers who are standing their ground. They're not giving the enemy an inch. No matter how much the enemy might push, they are standing their ground. They are resisting the devil. Now, really quickly, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a a vital thing that is important when we think about um, how we are to stand our ground. This This is a verse that our children memorize. This is a verse that we have memorized. But for some reason... Whenever people memorize this verse, they don't memorize the whole thing, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 13. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. That's where we stop. But notice how it ends, so you will be able to endure it. You see, we memorize that verse and we think God will not allow a temptation to come into my life that I don't have the ability to overcome and God's going to just take it away. No, that's not what Paul is saying. The grace that God has for us as we stand our ground and resist the devil is no matter what the devil throws our way, the Lord says, I'm going to give you a grace to endure it. There's no battle that the Christian is not not, uh, capable of winning. There's no battle with, the, with Satan that we are not capable of winning. God, uh, the Lord, through Paul, says, I'm going to give you a way of escape, not so that I can remove you from it, but so that you will be able to endure it. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, next, the next one, my favorite one, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is very important. I I want you to see, I think this is worth the time to develop. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I want to, for a second, rely on your Old Testament understanding, okay? Now, when the Lord had saved the uh, children of Israel out of Egypt, his desire was that he was going to take this entire nation of people and that entire nation was going to be priests to him, right? That was his desire. Now, when the children of Israel created for themselves the golden calf, What happened? There was one tribe that didn't bow down to it. Which tribe was that? Levi. Levi, okay? And so because the 11 tribes had bowed down to this idol, the Lord says, okay, the Levites, they're now my priests. And they're going to intercede for the people on behalf of all the 11 tribes. But Levi is my priest. Levi and, and his children are my priests, okay? Now, but there was a problem. If you follow the history of Israel, there was a problem with two sons of Aaron. And they offered profane... Um, offering to the Lord or fire to the Lord. What were their names? Does anyone remember? 
Hophni and Phineas. I always want to say uh, Nadab and Abihu. Different problem, right? Um, so Hophni and Phineas, they go into the presence of the Lord and they offer strange offerings to the Lord and those people are killed immediately, right? So after that incident, the Lord says, okay, there's going to be one day a year where the priest can draw near to me. What, what day was that? The Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. So once a year, there's going to be a priest and only one person, one time a year, can draw near to the place where God dwells. One time. Now, okay, stick with me, okay? I have, a, I have a purpose for this. There was something significant that happened in Ezekiel with the temple. Something very significant. What happened? Something left the temple. What's that? The ark. Okay, there's another thing, very significant, even more significant than that, that left the, that left the temple. The, 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 the glory of God, right? And the glory of God was representative of the presence of God, right? And so you look at, the, you look at Ezekiel, you read through that, and it seems like the, the glory of God leaves the temple in three different phases, okay? Beautiful study. Look at it for yourself. But to this day, the presence of God was not in the temple, okay? In fact, the only time the presence of God returned to the temple was when the Lord Jesus was there. And I think I can, I can support that with Scripture. But did anything change on the Day of Atonement as far as what the priest was to do? No. I mean, you're talking more than 300 years. You're looking like 350 years. There was one day a year where one man went into the Holy of Holies and presented an offering there. But the only problem, God wasn't there. They drew near to the place where God was supposed to be, but he was not there for 350 years. Now look at what James is saying. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You see, it wasn't guaranteed in the Old Testament. Because of their own sinfulness, because of their own idolatry, and the Lord, the Lord told them time and time again, I want to stay, I want to stay, and yet they would not listen, so he left them. And yet their practices still continued, and they still desire to draw near, probably just by ritual. But the Lord is saying, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. But first you have to submit yourself. The Lord wants this intimate relationship with you, and regardless of what you have done against the Lord, his desire is still the same, to draw near to you. And it's a promise. Beautiful. The fourth one, he says, is cleanse your hands. Uh, we could go into all of these things. Cleanse your hands. The whole idea is, is stop what you're doing. What you're doing is filthy. Clean, clean, up, clean up the way in which you're, 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 the actions in which you're living. Clean that up. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Not only are you to clean up the way in which you live your life practically, but the very intentions of your heart you need to change. But notice, he says very, something, something very curious. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Why would James call them to be miserable and mourn and weep? I mean, I mean, shouldn't the Christian be joyful? Isn't the joy of the Lord our strength? And yet James says, no, I want you to be miserable. I want you to be so miserable that it causes you to mourn and weep. I don't want you to laugh anymore. I want your laughter be to be turned into mourning as if a dearly 
loved family member has died and you're mourning their death. That's why I want you to respond. You say, well, why, James? James is saying this. You need to take your sin seriously. You need to take your sin seriously, knowing the, 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 the torment, the pain, and the anguish that you have brought to the heart of God. You need to take that seriously. And that should cause our hearts to just break within us when we think of, of how loving and gracious and tender the Lord is to us. James says you need to take that seriously. Take your sins seriously. Finally, the last thing he says and he promises, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The only thing I want to point out to you, he doesn't simply say humble yourself and the Lord will exalt you. He says humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. The whole idea that James is communicating here, I believe, is that you need to be ever so conscious of God's presence in your life that it causes you to live in humility. Not seeking your own desire, not seeking your own pleasures, but seeking first the Lord and his glory and how to live your life for him. And that is what James is communicating. And so I want to end just by asking you a series of questions. What is it that brings our hearts pleasure today? I mean, really, really think about that. Maybe, maybe you've set before yourself goals in life. You have a 30-year plan or whatever the case is. You're putting money aside so you can help your kids go through college. You have this house and you want to pay it off by a certain time frame. You, you have all of these plans and you're working towards all of these things. But where does the Lord fit in? It's not bad to make plans, which we'll see later on. But the Lord should be the all-encompassing factor of our life. Uh, Paul says in, in Colossians, when Christ, who is your life, appears. That's been such a challenging verse to me as we've gone through Colossians on Sunday nights. Christ, who is your life. You see, Paul viewed Christ not just as his source of life, but it was Christ who consumed his life. So what is it that brings our hearts pleasure today? And what is it that holds the affection of our hearts? Is it the Lord? Or is it our own plans and desires? He gives a greater grace. And the invitation is ours to just humble ourselves and the Lord will restore us into a relationship with him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do just uh, come before you this morning and uh, indeed our hearts are in awe of the fact that you would be jealous of us, Lord. But Father, we just ask and pray that you would help us to uh, turn from uh, the sin in our life. Father, you'd be so gracious to show us what areas in our life you are not preeminent. Father, we desire Christ to have that place in our life that you long for him to have, the one who holds the affection of our whole hearts. Oh, Father, we just ask that you would help us and that you would give us that greater grace that is so promised to us in your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for the day for him to return, but we pray, Father, that in the meantime, that we would not be adulteresses, oh, but, Father, that we would be faithful brides of the Lord Jesus Christ, eagerly waiting and excited for him to return. We ask this in his name. Amen.